I am so excited to share this interview with you. My interview with Joe Slawek, he is the leader of Fona Flavors of North America, and I just feel grateful I have found this individual. I feel like he wrote the book, The CEO's Compass, but he has shared with us such insights, something so unique. I'd never heard of this before, but talking about wholesome leadership and the wholesomeness of a culture. We talk about wholesomeness in the context of just individuals or family or community. Never did I hear a leader talk about this in terms of corporate culture. And then I wonder for you as a leader, is it all business or do you blend humanity, our lives, and business? Because I think when we start bringing who we are as people our rich backgrounds and our gifts into the corporate world and treat it like a community versus simply a transaction to get a result to pay shareholders and simply satisfy customers. You know, if you're not that leader, I would ask you to pause and reflect and think about why are we all here? Who do we need to rely on in order to serve others? And we think about a wholesome culture and the work that we do day in and day out to support people. Again, people will get that result. That is the work that we should be doing. And if you are in an organization where you don't see that leadership above you, ask yourself the question, can you be that leader now that people are looking up to? So stick with us. This is going to be an amazing interview. And again, thank you to all of our listeners who have been making the Drop-In CEO podcast such a success. Let's listen personal character is what happens when no one's looking, right? And when no one would know. Corporate culture is what happens when no one's looking, when the boss isn't looking, when no one else would know. That's corporate character. Well, what I've been finding is that the most successful companies where trust abounds are cultivating a spirit of wholesomeness. You actually have to have wholesome values in an organization, and you see the next generations caring about those kind of service projects. But I mean, wholesomeness builds trust. The most successful companies have had a long history of producing wholesomeness in their workplace. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. 
Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I am grateful that you have joined us on another episode of the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I am blessed week after week to speak to amazing leaders and bring their insights and inspiration to you. If you like this program, and I do hope you will, please subscribe, rate, review, tell others so we can continue to bring you great programming. And today, I am on honored to know and share the mic with my fantastic guest, Joe Slowick. I welcome you to the show and thank you for being a guest. Thank you very much, Deb. It's a pleasure to be here. I just finished your book and that's excellent. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to put that book together. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm grateful for that. And thank you. And just a little bit for our listeners before we pass the torch over to Joe. He is truly a leader. He has written a book that has inspired me. We're going to go deep into this. He wrote The Ingredients for Success, 10 Best Practices for Business and Life. So very, very applicable. You're not going to want to miss that. But a little bit about Joe. After years being in the flavor industry, he saw a need for a different kind of flavor company that had both great technology and great service. He wanted to build an organization that could compete with the largest flavor companies across a range of market segments, but also connect with customers as only small companies can, developing relationships, sharing visions, methods, and time. And he founded Fona in 1987 on these principles. And I could go on and on, but he was also his company, voters selected as one of the great places to work. I'm honored. He has so many accomplishments. I am looking forward to him sharing his insights with you. So Joe, please, if you could tell us a little bit about you, your business journey and the work that you've done so well. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. I am one of those people in our industry who, like many, began very young. My first role in a flavor company was 16 years old, (laughs) sweeping the floors at a wonderful family-owned company in Chicagoland called Food Materials. It was owned by the Coach family. And my first job back then was a summer intern from my high school and then through college in the Chicago area. I'm a UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago graduate. Through that time in college, I worked my internship in summer times after school. I was a working student and a little 22-year-old marketing management major got interviewed by that company. They asked me, Food Materials, they interviewed me, the president, Art Schramm, who was my mentor and actually president of the National IFT. The owner of the company, Bob Coach, was actually elected president of FEMA. So I had this amazing ownership group and mentors from the time I was 22 years old. So they asked me, hey, they called me Joey back in those days. It was Mr. Schram, Mr. Coach. And of course, every young person had a Y after their name, Joey, Debbie, (laughs) Susie. (laughs) They said, hey, Joey, we want you to interview to go into sales. And I said, 
well, I'm a marketing major and I was looking for a, a marketing position, but we knew flavor companies back in those days. This is the seventies. Didn't really have a marketing department outside of literature or something to that effect. And so they said, no, we want you in sales. And Truth be known, I was just one scared 22-year-old. I was terrible at it. But they said, hey, we believe in you. We're going to coach you. I did Dale Carnegie. I did basic educations. I remember making sales calls and being so exhausted, I'd have to go home and take a nap. <laughs> you know, It was just not natural. But I followed who the best salespeople were, and I worked my way up from, I suppose it was 14th place, last place, up to by the time I was in my late 20s, I was the number two salesperson and then the number one salesperson about age 30. That success allowed me to be invited to Food Materials executive team. During that time, I already, because I started when I was 16, I already had 15 years with this company. Just like somebody who comes up through the ranks, you had a lot of friends in the organizations. You had a lot of following, for in today's words, you had a big following, and they rooted for you, and that was so important. I went on to lead sales and marketing of the sales force, obviously. There were about 15 and the marketing team and did that till about my mid-30s when the owner of the company, unfortunately, Bob Coach, had been diagnosed with cancer and decided to sell the company. We didn't really know what was going on. It was in the days where that information wasn't shared, but we knew that from a management view, while the company was very successful, they were cleaning it up, going to a cash model rather than a profitable growth model. So I said, well, I didn't know that it would actually be sold, but I said, well, if there's ever a time in my life that I could start a business, maybe this is it. And that battle went on for maybe two years <laughs> in my head. And I thought I was well compensated, especially if you're the number one salesperson. I probably had the number one income in the company because it was partially commission-based at that time. So, so um, in April of 87, just made that decision to pull the trigger and begin Fona. And at the beginning, our name back in the 80s takes a little memory lane. Everything was named geographically. Bank of Itasca, you know, (laughs) Standard Oil of Indiana. It was always a geographical hook. So Our name, even though I was a marketing major, was Flavors of North America, which incidentally was about the size of my dream. That's about as big as it (laughs) it was. And hey, if we could do well here, well, 
customers quickly began to abbreviate flavors of North America because it was pretty long to write, have to go back in memory, plus they're entering things in computers. So we quickly got abbreviated to call Joe at flavors. Well, we couldn't protect that. Or called Joe at FNA. We couldn't protect that. And back then there was a company, FNC, and hey, called Joe at Fona. Fona. Okay, let's rebrand ourselves. And we did that early 90s and made all of our lives simpler from that time. So we were a classic entrepreneurial startup. You're an expert on CEOs, but they're different than entrepreneurs. And I just happened to be speaking on this. I happen to be honored by a Chicagoland Hall of Fame entrepreneur, a Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. But something about entrepreneurs, they actually accumulate risk. They take risk and put it on the enterprise. So as they accumulate the risk of that decision, hey, if I make a mistake, I'm going to lose my house, already probably had a second mortgage, already cashed in your 401k, already have it in the business, already assuming those risks. So entrepreneurs tend to accumulate risk, agglomerate risk, And that's the last time they like risk. From that moment after their CEO journey, if you will, begins, because now it's mitigate risk, reduce risk, eliminate risk, build trust. So at the beginning, it takes a lot of trust to invest in a new business. And as a CEO, (laughs) Businesses run on trust. They don't run on money. And that trust. So good CEOs get rid of risk. One of the interesting things, I'll just finish the entrepreneur part, but one of the interesting things is in Ernst & Young's study of 685 winners, (laughs) the two biggest factors in entrepreneurial success were experience on the job. Nobody goes into an industry, hey, I'm going to go into the financial industry and then goes and starts a restaurant. (laughs) You learn in your 20s and become an expert in your 20s. And that learning is the foundation for entrepreneurship that may appear later. Most the bulk of entrepreneurs, almost 80%, 76, do their entrepreneurship between ages 20 (laughs) and 39. So if there is going to be an entrepreneur kind of that accumulation of risk, it happens a little younger. It doesn't matter. Some people actually become entrepreneurs on their winners before they were 20. But Usually, people get so successful on the job, 
it's hard for them to go back to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> They're already well compensated. I think I was well compensated. One of the few people who said that autonomy was important. Now, my journey as a CEO began as when you first start a business, you're really a salesperson. There is no other thing you're doing when you have a new enterprise. You have to start there. And then for you to scale, you actually have to build the trust and credibility that somebody might want to join your company. <laughs> somebody might want to be a salesperson with you. And you do that in our particular case. We had only two things we worried about. Later, it became three, but high tech. We knew the big companies had high technology, and we knew the small companies had high service, great service. So we called it high tech and high touch. And we stayed with that model. We did full reaction technologies, full laboratories, and full encapsulation. We had spray dryers before we had business. We had full analytical equipment before we were even in business because we knew we needed to compete with the biggest. And then service-wise, we needed to be able to deliver, and that was Fona's story. Later, as we got very good as uh, at culture, and you referenced it, we recognized another high so high tech, high touch, and high trust. We recognize that the trust of our people gets radiated and reflected to our customers. That trust of our customers and that investment in them gave a trust. It's circular almost. Your people have to trust you. They'll express that trust to customers that those customers will express their trust in FONA by voting with their dollars. So we were high tech, high touch, high trust. And just last year, and you referenced it already, three years ago, FONA one of companies all sizes in great places to work, number four. Last year, they divided it into mid-sized companies and large, and FONA was number one in the country in mid-size out of tens of thousands of applications. And this year, they repeated with number two out of 10,000 win as we went through that. So that CEO journey, little different, and I've just been so blessed that I've been able to both I don't know which one I'd like more, <laughs> the entrepreneur part or the CEO part. But I was terrible at being a CEO. Thank you for writing your book. But that's how people really learn. And a CEO's job is different because now you're defining reality for the company. The company sees the world through the CEO's eyes, and he's communicating that. 
And then the CEO, like every human being, has to fight a lot of denial. (laughs) Back in our history of our flavor industry, oh, I can remember people say, well, there's not enough natural flavors to supply this market. Well, you had to fight that denial because there's plenty that trend went unabated and continues to this very moment now. And so defining reality, hey, there is a future. Our scientists, our flavorists, our teams need to work on natural and be excellent at it. And we have to stop fighting that denial because there's always sort of a technical or a procurement bias that's going on. And if you see those patterns, then you get the slightest opportunity to predict the future. And so because you predict the future, not because you're a prophet, you predict the future because you see the pattern and trust that pattern. Again, I think the CEO's job is just delightful and it's been wonderful. And well, I've had 50 years to get it right, plus my high school internship, you know, and college internship. I've been a student of one industry for a long time, and there are so many wonderful leaders in the flavor industry, and I've been benefited by working with many. So, Joe, oh my, you first of all have inspired me sharing your journey because one, you, I don't know, having great mentors early in your career, people seeing the opportunity that you can afford going from marketing to sales. I wish I had such people that had vision about my future, but obviously there was something in you that they trusted you to figure it out. So kudos to you for having the opportunity to have people that saw the best in you. But I am curious here, There's so much in here. I mean, you are describing my journey to a T, being the entrepreneur, having my own business, and just a can-do attitude. Investing now for the future, because I see the future. So I'm already thinking ahead, trying to mitigate risk. You are, if nothing else, thank you very much. You've been giving me some free consultation here. But I am curious. There's this leap here that you, in 1987, after going over this for two years, says, okay, I'm at the top of my game, love what I do, but I want to do the business I want to create a business. I want to create the future. I want to be the entrepreneur and create the future I want. What was that leap that enabled you to go from working for somebody else and being quite successful to saying, I'm going to do it on my own? I'm curious. Yeah, I think that argument in my brain, I think I wore myself out. And by the way, it's a little bigger decision than that. So now I'm counting when I interned, I'm now in... 20 years. These are every business friend I have. The shipping department knows me. They're rooting for me. These are all my friends. So not only that leap was the financial risk back then, even I was well compensated. I made more than the president of that company because of commissions. And I did about 46% of their business in my territory among 15 people. And so it wasn't that there was that productivity there. But the fear, the dealing with fear, 
it was more than just financial and it was more than these were people I loved and cared about. I didn't want to hurt them and Fona didn't. <laughs> I wish in some way anybody listened to us, but when you just begin, you have to build, let's put it this way, a lot of old friends get amnesia or their company were, I had the Midwest national accounts. They were too big to buy from Fona. I had to grow Fona first, and then customers came, if that made sense. So what was that? I think it was the support, our friends even personally. One of them said to my wife, is Joe going to really quit his job? What are you going to do? And my wife said, well, he's going to, and if it doesn't work out, I'm sure he can get a job. I think he wants to do something more than that, more than that. And we've been blessed. Thank you, God. I'd like to say it was me. I made every mistake <laughs> that could be made about a manager. We didn't make customer mistakes, but you had to learn finance. You had to learn computer systems. You had to learn things. Selling was relatively, you knew that. And, oh, I should talk about entrepreneurs, and I'm going to, as quick as I can, two primary types, a craftsman type, most common. So a craftsman would be a flavor chemist who starts a company, for example, or a technical person who starts a company. Craftsmen are the people who start tool and die companies, maybe a body shop. <laughs> hey, they learn their craftsmen somewhere else. That's the primary one. The second type that's next is opportunist. I was an opportunist. I was one of the people who could see the opportunity, which seemed obvious to me, but apparently it wasn't, that Big companies have the technology, little companies have the service. How do we win in that? You need both. And so being an opportunist meant that I had to go backwards. And that backwards step was I have a lab book that they gave me and it's still empty. I'm on Formula One. <laughs> I had to have great flavorists. I had to have great quality leaders. I had to have great analytical leaders. I had to have craftsmen. And I recognized that from the very beginning, that getting the right flavorist, getting the right technical people, those craftsmen were key to being able to. And I think it's even more important to understand technical people buy from technical people. They don't buy from salespeople. They don't buy from CEOs or presidents. They buy from each other. And so we were blessed to be able to, one of the best women executives ever was with us in the early days. Her name was Leslie Fisher. And I had met her. She was a consultant. We brought her in. And her credibility helped place a ring of trust around us that was very important. But that's an opportunist getting a craftsman. There's three other types of entrepreneurs. 
not worth a lot of time, but I'll just mention them, lifestyle. Somebody retires and then he starts a consulting practice because the company he worked for needed him a couple days a week. And a hobbyist, that's someone who maybe rides bikes and he gets so proficient that everybody comes to him, his web page for advice. Well, maybe he gets sponsored and that hobby becomes free to him. And the last one, even more rare, that's the financial entrepreneur. You're a very wealthy family and you have an interest in, well, I make it our industry. If you're the Mars family, I don't know them, but I just know how wonderful they are. Maybe you start a business to explore the health benefits of cocoa, and it's a 10-year financial one, and you do research. And the difference with the last three is profit isn't the center of them, where with respect to craftsmen and opportunists, we quickly learned no money, no business, no <laughs> no revenue, no growth, and everything. The other three are businesses, but have a little different financial purposes. I hope that helps. I have to rethink this. I may want to start doing video here of my podcast interviews because everything you are saying, Joe, is so meaningful to me. I mean, the mere fact that the environment provided you people that were rooting for you as the reason why you should try to go out on yourself, serve a higher purpose, serve customers, and enable people in your organization to do their best work. I love the high tech, high touch, high trust. Oh my. I mean, again, validating what I'm doing, but I also would turn to my listeners. If you are seeking to take a leap of faith on yourself and there are people out there rooting for you, you might want to listen because they trust you and they're there. They have your back. They believe you. And so maybe you should start believing in yourself. So I am so inspired that between yourself and what was inside, the people around you and those above saw fit in you starting something else. But the other thing that was so inspiring for me is about the different kinds of entrepreneurs, the craftsmen. So often I see in the flavor industry, the people that rise, and they should, are the people that are the flavorists, the food safety specialists. But sometimes they may not have the opportunist mentality. And here I come in as the opportunist, don't have that same pedigree. I look for the opportunity. I look to reduce risk. And sometimes I may or may not have had all the right craftsmen around me. But now, now that I am the entrepreneur hoping to be a CEO leader such as yourself, I am handpicking some of the best talent around me that are smarter than me and can even guide me at times to get to that place where I aspire to. So, Joe, you're amazing. And I am just so grateful for all of your insights. Just for a quick thing for our listeners, again, Joe has written an amazing book, Ingredients for Success, 10 Best Practices for Business Life. We have not even gone into these 10 best practices. Some of them that stick with me are aiming for excellence, not perfection, redistribute your talents, that's a worthy investment, and expressing gratitude. Oh my, we need to express gratitude day in and day out. But Joe, I do have one more question before we bring it to a close. Since writing the book and these 10 amazing concepts that do apply to business and life, have you since come into any other ingredients that you found you would want to add to the book if you had an opportunity to add to it? I'm curious. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, I just had kind of came out in a presentation that I'll make, came out, and it's been on my mind recently. I was addressing university scholars, happened to be at my alma mater, and in this world we live in, I think this has become more profound than I guessed, because when I said it, I could see it resonated with people, and that is, I'll talk about, when it comes to personal character, personal character is what happens when no one's looking and when no one would know. Corporate culture is what happens when no one's looking, when the boss isn't looking, when no one else would know. That's corporate character. Well, what I've been finding is that the most successful, and this is my gift to you today, the most successful companies where trust about are cultivating a spirit of wholesomeness. You actually have to have wholesome values in an organization, and you see the next generations caring about those kind of service projects. But I mean wholesomeness builds trust. So in a tradition in the workplace, nothing delighted me more than when I saw our PhDs having lunch with a plant worker who they were doing a joint project with. To me, that kind of wholesomeness was an encouragement for that production worker to get his son or daughter to college was doing that. So creating wholesome events, whether they're employee meetings and breakfast or employee lunch, we had a long tradition of lunch with the president. If it was your birthday month, (laughs) you went to lunch with the president, you could ask him anything that was going on. And There's a hunger for wholesome practices in the workplace. And now when I look at it with that lens, I see the most successful companies have had a long history of producing wholesomeness in their workplace. And it's same thing as personal character. All of us can always cultivate some wholesomeness in there. Hey, maybe serve at a soup kitchen. Hey, maybe do something kind, visit your mother in the home or cultivating that wholesomeness is an ingredient that the best companies do well. So inspiring. And I try to hold back tears, but I am a little teary-eyed right now because I'm just grateful to know that It's just not about the corporate grind. There are companies out there like the ones that you created along with others that believe in the connectivity with humanity. And that is something that I feel very, very strongly about is connect with the humans, build that trust, high touch, again, building trust. It's at the end of the day, all we have are humans to rely on. The equipment needs humans to interface with. That's all we're left with is our humanity. So Joe, this has been an amazing interview and I'm just so excited People are going to want to connect with you, know a little bit more about your work. How best can they do that? Well, I have a email that's probably the most direct way. It's jslawick at bona.com. So J-S-L-A 
W-E-K at Bona.com. You also are free to call my assistant, Gina, who is 630-578-8633. That's my answer line here. And I invite that conversation. I suppose you could Google me. We should all Google ourselves, but I think there's information there as well. Thank you, Deb. Oh, my God, Joe. Thank you. And shout out to Gina. She was amazing trying to make arrangements for us to connect, record this interview so that others can gain your insights, inspiration. I was inspired as well. Grateful to know you. Grateful to record this conversation. And I do wish you continued success. Thank you so much. Thank you, Deb. I'm honored. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership navigate rapid transformation and elevate the leaders of tomorrow if you're feeling off track the ceo's compass assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days not months you can learn more about the ceo's compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com now go out and lead inspire and achieve your goals